Brian Smith here, and welcome to the Dream Path Podcast, where I try to get inside the heads of talented creatives from all over the world. My goal is to demystify and humanize the creative process and make it accessible to everyone. Now let's jump in. Jason Moore, welcome to the Duocast. Another one. Another one bites the... Big one. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so we're here to recap two episodes, James Healy Jr. and Sean Durkin. Great interviews. I was excited about both of them because James, I know through a Facebook group that I'm in, the guy who put this together is Stephen Joyner, and he's, uh, he's an interesting fellow. He's a publicist, and he has clients that are in the entertainment industry, and uh, he puts them all together in a Facebook group, and I'm part of that group. And so I had access to this actor named James Healy Jr., who has uh, quite the interesting career. What did you think of his interview? Well, I thought it was great. I didn't know who he was at first, but I looked up and watched his demo reel, and I do remember him from shows. Right. I've seen him in the past. Yeah. And the interview was great. Um, he's had a lot of experience in his life, the military, uh, being a, a police chief, and his various acting. He sounds like he's a hard worker. Yeah, he's a working actor. Yeah. Yeah, the working actors are interesting to talk to. And, and another one we um, interviewed a while back at Sundance was Nick Basta. Oh, I remember, remember him. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and, and these folks are interesting to me because they are not household names. Right. But yet they're consistently working on really impressive TV and film projects. Yeah. People forget that there's a lot of folks that are responsible for making these movies and TV shows come together. There's a lot of actors that are not necessarily big name actors, but yet they contribute a lot to the project and their careers are fascinating and impressive. Oh, yeah. In fact, I was, uh, you know, my wife is into Law and Order SVU and they'll just run it on a loop, you know, every episode. And he happened to be on there. Oh, yeah. uh, Last week. Yeah. He was playing a dad and him and his wife were in there talking. I think their son was missing or was sick or something. Yeah. There he was on the screen. Yeah. Yeah. He's got one of those faces when you see his headshot, you're like, okay, yeah, I've seen that guy. Right. And I've seen him with hair too. Uh Uh-huh. He's got his uh, traveling hair, doesn't he? He's got the soft top and the hard top. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. So James was a great interview and I consider him to be a friend now. He shared the episode on social media, which I always appreciate from guests. Great. And he was enthusiastic and excited about it. And that's really what makes these interviews special sometimes is that when you have folks that are are not doing it like, oh, they're on a press tour. Right. It's an obligation. Sure. It's like, oh, another one, another one of these. (laughs) And you feel like you're kind of putting them out. With James, I felt like we were uh, really connecting and I hope to follow his career for the next decade probably. Right. And I appreciate him doing his own separate audio as well. It really made the quality of the interview good. Yeah, that's always nice when they're technologically savvy like that. Oh, yeah. He has that savvy from being able to record his auditions, basically. Right. So that's what working actors do. They record their um, whatever their scenes are on video and audio, and they send it in, and that's how they audition these days. That's about the way you can only do it now. Right. COVID safe. Yep. So Sean Durkin, you know, Sean was a guy that I was not able to talk to at Sundance. I knew he was there. I knew he had this movie called The Nest. And there's a very exhausting schedule for the press. If, you, if you're trying to see a bunch of movies at Sundance, 
it's impossible. It's literally impossible to see every single movie that's there. So you have to make tough choices. And uh, for whatever reason, I was not able to see The Nest. Mm. But I knew that it got a lot of attention. There was a lot of big name actors in there. Carrie Coon, Jude Law. And I knew from Sean Durkin's first feature film, Martha Marcy May Marlene, which is uh, fantastic, by the way. I recommend it if you have access to HBO Max. It's free on there right now. Okay. I knew from that first film that Sean was something special. And so when I didn't get to see The Nest, I was bummed, but I knew I'd be able to follow up and at least see it streaming, right? So uh-huh. his publicist, Emma Myers, sent me a screener and uh, she was very kind to set up that interview with Sean. And it was really nice to be able to do a deep dive with Sean on the practical how-to of where he got in the film industry. Yeah. And what I discovered in talking to him and what I appreciated about this interview is that he shared his journey through the Sundance Labs mm. and talked about how important that was and how formative it was for him to go through the screenwriter's lab and also the director's lab. And that's something I've been trying to talk my oldest daughter into applying for, Whitney. Mm. Because when you go to a lab like that, where you're surrounded by filmmakers, you're going to meet a community of folks that know how to cultivate and nurture young filmmakers. Right on. And so that's what Sean did. And that's how the Martha Marcy May Marlene movie came to be, is that he developed that screenplay through that program and then took it through the director's lab and then eventually got it made after going through those two labs. Nice. And that movie, um, you know, he talked about the process of getting big name talent attached to his first feature film, like Sarah Paulson and Hugh Dancy, Elizabeth Olsen, who wasn't a huge name at that time, but was pretty well known, was the, uh, the star of that film. And, uh, and then we also talked about the process of The Nest and how that came together. So as you have gathered by now, Jason, I guess my taste in terms of where this podcast goes and where it leans is very film-centric. Yeah. I love movies. I love talking to creatives who are in the film industry because I've always aspired to do that myself. Right. And so in some ways, it's kind of a selfish endeavor for me to use my natural curiosity to just find these filmmakers and sit them down and ask them how they did it. No, I think that's great. I hope that my listeners get something out of it too, that it's not just like, oh, this is just a selfish endeavor for Brian. I don't think so. I think people enjoy it as well. Right. Did he do the rental? And he did the rental. Yeah. I, I saw that. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So he produced the rental. And that was written and directed by Dave Franco, who is James Franco's brother. Oh, cool. Yeah. yeah. So, and you know James Franco. Oh, yeah. And of course, when you saw the rental, um, I'm sure you looked up Dave Franco too. He's done a lot of interesting projects too. He's not, he doesn't have as many credits to his name as his brother, James, who has done everything from soap operas to television shows to, uh, to movies and a lot of comedies. Pineapple Express. I don't know uh, yeah. if you ever saw Pineapple Express, oh. but. James, oh, yeah. he, James Franco was fantastic in that. Oh, of course. He plays a great stoner. Yeah, he does. And, and you would know what a great stoner is, right? Yeah. yeah not not through personal experience, just through well, research. you know, <laughs> research. That's it, research. Yeah. Uh, not as much anymore, but yeah, uh, yeah I've had, I had my days. Yeah. You know, Snoop Dogg. Oh, of course. Anything he does, he's stoned in anyway. So. Right. And then uh, Jim Brewer oh, from Half-Baked. I right. mean, he, he's not a stoner. Mm-hmm. but plays a good stoner because he just kind of has that natural look. Oh, yeah, he does, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, it was neat to hear how Sean is navigating his way through the film world as a producer, as a screenwriter, as a director, and how those roles are related to each other. Right. And it was very kind of him to sit down. I could tell during the interview and also leading up to the interview that he was booked solid. They were trying to like give me 15 minutes with him. And I said, I cannot do this in 15 minutes. I'm not even sure I can do it in 30 minutes. Right. It's just not my style. It's at least 45 minutes. And so I was able to get that 45 minute block with him and it was, it was a good chat. It was worth it. Yeah. So you and I both watched the same movie recently. It was a documentary, right? Yeah. Zappa. Oh man. What'd you think? I loved it. Yeah. Absolutely loved it. I love Frank Zappa. I do. He's, he's considered an oddball for sure. Mm -hmm. And you know, over time, just through his music and just the way he kind of is, his personality, people assumed he did drugs, you know? It I was, assumed it until I watched the documentary. He never did. Yeah. And I've also heard that he kind of made his band stay sober. Like they're, oh, his working band, we're not going to get into drugs. Mm -hmm. You guys need to focus. And he's very focus oriented on having his written music and he actually writes music. Yeah, composer. He's a composer. He writes it on paper. Each section, horn sections, everything. And he wants it played exactly the way it is on the, or at least as close as they can to being perfect. Right. Can't do that when you're on drugs. So can barely do it when you're not because it's pretty complex stuff that he's writing. Yeah. I remember the scene with the London Philharmonic. Was it the London Philharmonic yes. that he was with? Yep. And he was being interviewed about it. And he was like, look, well, they asked him, how did you do this? How did you get them to play this music? And he said, I paid them. Yeah. That was Letterman. Yeah. I, I paid them. <laughs> And, and I think his comment was to one of the interviewers, it may have been Letterman, that, that the music is so complex that there's really very little chance that the entirety of his music would be played the way that he intended. Exactly. That if he was lucky, maybe 70 to 75% would be played perfectly. Yep. And it just goes to show you that he really had a genius that was singular yep. in that time frame. And I came in, I mean, you and I have completely different perspectives going into this movie because I was not a big Zappa fan. And that's not because I don't like his music. I just have never listened to it. Mm -hmm. It has been inaccessible to me as a musician just because it's not palatable. It's not pop. Right. It, it's not catchy. It's not. And it's, you really can't put it in a genre. You can't even call it jazz. No. Nope. I mean, I would want to call it jazz because jazz is, for me, sometimes just as inaccessible, maybe jazz fusion or something, mm -hmm. where you're like, okay, I don't understand this. And so I'll turn it off. I'll change the station or put in a different CD or you know, change the playlist. But um, Zappa was one of those guys that I heard in the 1980s. Mm -hmm. 70s is a little before my time. I was, wasn't even a teenager yet. But in the 1980s, for sure, I was totally aware that he was around. And then uh, Dweezil in the 90s, I think. Moon. And, and Moon. Yeah. But I came into this movie not as a fan, but someone who was just fascinated by this character. And then I discover through the, the film, of course, that he doesn't use drugs. And he is someone who really doesn't want to waste time with niceties. Right. So I remember seeing and hearing one of their bandmates, it might have been the saxophone player. I think so. Who was saying... You know, the entire time I was with him and I played with him, I never heard him give us one single compliment that we had done what we had asked him to do. 
Yeah, and that was him. Yeah, yeah. Or maybe he said there was one time. Where one he, time there, he said uh, there was he he was complimentary toward me or someone else in the band, and there was this look of of sadness on his face, almost like a son who was talking about how he'd never been hugged by his dad or something. It, it, I got the same feeling. Yeah, and it, it gave me a little twinge of sadness, but also some respect for the dude for mm-hmm. for Zappa because he knew exactly what he wanted. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't going to waste time trying to make everybody feel warm and fuzzy when that that just wasn't on his agenda. Right. Yeah. You know, one thing that I think formed the attitude of Frank Zappa, and I think if you go back and watch the doc, the part where he had a studio in Cucamonga and made a, a stag tape, a simulated sex tape, yeah. and then got busted. That was not a stag tape at all. It wasn't. It was yeah. fake. Yeah. <laughs> and he ended up in jail for six months. Right. That'll change your attitude. You know, and I think he came out of that going, you know what? I'm going to fuck with people. Right. And it was political. It was sexual. I mean, a lot of his music was pornographic. Um, You just got to go back and listen to some of it and you'll, you'll hear it. It's just completely like in your face. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For the time, it was completely like kind of taboo, the seventies and eighties to just directly talk about sex or directly talk about, you know, slamming Republicans and in politics. And he was the only guy kind of that was really doing that. He was very provocative. Yeah. And I think he was also provocative in the record industry too, critical of record industry executives and companies yep. and, and putting himself out there when he didn't really have to, because he didn't have a lot of skin in the game when it came to music rights and things like that. Right. He owned his, his publishing and all of his you know music collection, which is vast. I mean, oh, the, man. The vault that he has is just amazing. It's crazy. But another thing that impressed me about Zappa was the community of folks that had a lot of respect for him, like John Lennon and Yoko Ono, yeah, who came on stage with him and were performing this bizarre music that you could tell really only Zappa and Lennon and Ono were kind of dialed into. And everybody else is like there for the ride, right? going, what is going on here? Yeah. But it, it was fun to see that because there's a connection being made between geniuses and the audience is in on it a little bit, but in a way they're kind of like on the outside looking in, seeing these relationships happen on stage, Mick Jagger just popping in to want to hang out at Zappa's house. Yeah. Like that says a lot about this guy. He wasn't a platinum artist. No. Wasn't even a gold artist. No. I don't think. No, maybe later. Yeah, I think he had one song or something that was a hit song. Valley Girl. Valley Girl. Yeah, it went to number eight. When I heard it on the documentary, I was like, this is a hit? It was. <laughs> it's, it's hard to comprehend because it's not really that catchy or, or poppy. No, but it's funny. You hear, it is funny. You know, Moon doing her, oh my God, you know, <laughs> doing the Valley Girl thing. Yeah. And uh, I heard an interview with Dweezil Zappa. He was interviewed on uh, Mark Marin's WTF podcast. Mm. And uh, it's always interesting to hear the perspective of children. And how they, like David Bowie's son was interviewed, I forget his name, and that probably says a lot about <laughs> living in the shadow of someone huge like David Bowie or, oh, or, or Frank Zappa. But he's a movie director, the son of David Bowie. But anyway, you talk to or you listen to interviews with kids of famous people, and living in the shadow of famous people is tough because number one, if you're famous, you're very likely not parent of the year. No. There's a reason that you're famous with your fans, and it's it's not because you're staying at home with the kids 
And it's usually because you're on tour and you're writing music and you're paying attention to something that's inherently pretty selfish, which is being a star, being a creator and creating music. And so when you hear interviews with Dweezil or with David Bowie's son, you get this real uneasy feeling like you can't even talk about their parents Hmm. because they don't want to be identified as Frank's son. Well, I think Dweezil... um I think Dweezil's okay with it. He, he's embraced his dad's persona and his, his being. Well, definitely his music. For I, sure. I, I mean, I've heard his music and, and it's, it's remarkably, I, I wouldn't call it derivative at all because he's, he's a unique guy and I've listened to a lot more Dweezil than I have Frank, but he's definitely inspired by his dad's genius. Well, you know, he, his tour that he did, the Zappa plays Zappa, was mm-hmm. him just playing his dad's music. Right. So it's like, and he plays it impeccably. Mm-hmm. He's so skilled, that guy. He's got a lot of talent. Probably the only guy in the world that can play it impeccably. Probably. Yeah. Yeah, I would bet. Yeah, I was really sad to watch that last performance um, in Czechoslovakia. It was great. He's up on stage. He's got his cigarette stuck in the guitar strings of his, was it a Strat or something yep. that he had? And uh, so much confidence and such an icon. And he goes to commemorate the liberation of this country from Russia and does this performance. And then you see in the captions that it was his last performance. And I think he knew at that time that that would probably be his last performance. Yep. But to leave this earth at such a young age is sad. But at the same time, you look at his catalog and everything that he's created. He had like 96 albums or something like that. Uh, over 100. Over 100? 63 while he was alive and then another 50 some after he passed. Yeah. And I think they could probably make another 100. Probably. Out of the music that he's already recorded. Yep. So I know we've talked a lot about Zappa, but that's because you and I both really love this film. Uh, Just one thing real quick. My first taste of Zappa wasn't until about 1987. I was 17. I was working at a pizza place and I was playing, had a little tape machine back there playing some Van Halen or some shit back there. And my manager, Andy, at the time comes up, ejects the tape, pulls it out and goes, let's listen to some real music. (laughs) And he throws in uh, Joe's Garage by Frank Zappa. And I'd never heard anything like it in my life. I was hooked. I was just like, <laughs> this is so weird. Let's and, listen to and some so real music. silly. Yeah. That's funny. Well, we should give a shout out to the writer director, Alex Winter. He really did a nice job. Sure did. Putting that together. Oh, and yeah. I didn't even realize he was a, a filmmaker. I didn't either. Yeah. As soon as I heard that he had directed this film, I started following him on Twitter and, and I'm going to look for great things to come out of his career because he, he clearly knows how to tell a story. Oh yeah. It's good. So, um, did you see my recent post on Facebook about Bob Dylan? Uh, something about him selling his catalog? Yeah, $300 million. Damn. $300 million. Now, I don't think that's enough money, to be <laughs> honest with you. For I think it's a billion-dollar catalog, uh-huh. but I'm no accountant. I mean, I don't know what the, the actual value is in terms of streams and what they're going to do with that music. But didn't it make you a little bit sad to read that, that he gave up? I mean, he's 79 years old. I know. He's probably thinking, well... Might as well just um, monetize whatever I can out of this catalog and do some estate planning. Maybe that was his thought. Probably. But to to give up the licensing on all of that music, that huge body of work, right. and sell it to a corporation. Who did he sell it to? I think it was Universal. Oh, yeah. Well, they'll, they'll make billions off of it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But it just, for some reason, it made me sad. It's the last thing that a true artist like Dylan would ever contemplate that they would do when they were in their 20s and 30s, just starting out. Like, yeah, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to write all these, all these songs, all these albums. I'm going to 
go tour for decades. And at the end, I'm going to sell my entire catalog to a corporation for $300 million. It totally does not seem like a Bob Dylan thing to do. It doesn't. It doesn't. But I think when you're 79 years old and you're probably trying to plan for you know, your legacy, mm-hmm. your financial legacy for your family and your children. And um, I guess it makes sense for him to do. I, I'm not being judgmental of it. I'm just trying to put myself in his shoes and figure out, you know, what was going on there. He, you know, he was such an anti-establishment guy back in the day. And it just seems kind of, kind of weird, you know, that he would sell it, sell it all. Yeah. Like well, I guess when you're 79 though, like what, what are you going to do? I mean. Well, he's not touring. No, can't tour anymore. No. Not for a while. Maybe he's sick. We don't know. Well, Bob Dylan, what a legend. A true legend, for sure. He comes up a lot in our duo cast. He does. He's a very, he's, again, one of those unique artists that kind of stays with us. I wonder know? if he ever played with Zappa. I don't, I wouldn't imagine so. <laughs> I can't imagine Frank Zappa getting along with Bob Dylan. Well, they definitely had their very distinct, strong opinions about the way things should be. They, they probably had musically. some of the same political views. Oh, yeah. But personality-wise, I think they would have. I don't know. Clash? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Well, they both ran the show, right? Exactly. They both um, controlled everything that was happening musically on stage and creatively. So, Jason, what do we have coming up next? We have the Christmas edition of the Dream Path podcast coming out on the 23rd. Next week, Don McLean. Oh, my gosh. We've been waiting so long to put this out. I know, and it's such a great interview. I've been sitting on it, just wondering, when are we going to publish this thing? Yeah, 23rd. So, what do you think of it? It's awesome. Yeah. It's Don McLean. <laughs> uh, you know, and, you know, just from what I remember, because I've listened to it a couple of times, you know, you didn't really talk a whole lot about his music. I mean, there's, there, you guys do talk about kind of his journey, but it, it was more focused on just kind of regular other, other stuff and politics. And it was a nice, just kind of casual talk. I had to make a decision going into that because American Pie and Vincent are two songs that he's probably talked about more than any other songs Mm -hmm. in his catalog. And I've looked at a lot of interviews with him, went on YouTube, and of course, like I do with all my guests, I do a deep dive before I talk to him. And I had to make a decision. What am I going to say about American Pie? Or how much am I going to ask about American Pie? Because what hasn't been said about that song? Oh, yeah. And you can just Google it, Don McLean American Pie interview, and probably see, you know, a hundred clips of him talking about that song. So, what I wanted to do for this episode is give listeners something new, something they haven't heard of before. Yeah, and you, did, you nailed it. Well, thank you. Yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing the finished product. I, I have not heard anything since I recorded it, so I'm just going off of memory. And you know, that it was a phone interview, which yep. is your first phone interview, and it, it ended up sounding great. Yeah, we have a nice setup through our roadcaster to be able to do that. Perfect. I was surprised at how great the quality was. Better than Zoom, I think. I think so, too. It was nice quality. We have another end-of-year special coming up as well called the Duocast 2020 Recap, right? Yep. We are going to recap some of the highlights from 2020 and go through and, and listen to some clips from some of our favorite guests and try to figure out what we've learned in this year, other than it's probably the worst year on record for humanity. Oh man, for sure. But for the podcast, not a bad year. Not at all. You did really well. It started off great and it's rocking now. (laughs) Started off with Sundance. Yeah. Then we sink into a global pandemic. Right. And we're still there. Right. But I think there's hope in the future. 
Oh, I guarantee. Yeah. We're going to get through this. 2021 is looking bright. I think so. So I am really looking forward to our duo cast chat together. We haven't recorded that yet, but I think we're going to have a lot of fun doing that. It'll probably be a longer duo cast than maybe 45 minutes to an hour. And we'll be talking about all of our favorite guests and also uh, recapping the Don McLean episode. Yeah. That's going to be a good one. Right on, brother. Well, I appreciate it, Brian. Thank you for inviting me over. I appreciate you. Talk to you later. Hey, thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If so, I have a favor to ask. Can you go to wherever you listen to podcasts and leave me a review? Your feedback is what keeps this podcast going. You can also check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook with the handle at DreamPathPod. And as always, go find your dream path. <laughs>